Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our next guest is... Hello and welcome to another Our Next Guest Is. This is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers and entertainers in the corporate and events world and we meet the person behind the name. My name is Michael Pope and I'm here with Carson White as usual from Leading Voice. Carson, who is our next guest? Our next guest has spent a life more on the edge of drama than many. When he headed to the East Timor crisis in 1999, he was setting out on the adventure of a lifetime. It was a journey that would see him navigate some of the globe's most brutal war zones to deliver emergency aid and conquer the world's tallest mountain. Awarded the coveted Green Beret in his role as a commando with the Australian Special Forces, he burned with a passion to put his skills to good use. Today, all that life experience and training fuels his company, Global Frontline, where lessons learned on the battlefield and in in emergency aid can translate into the business world. Our next guest is Mark Squiz Squirrel. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, I take it from that introduction that as a kid during lunchtime, you weren't spending time playing chess. No, that's true. I was certainly one of the kids who was running about having a bit of an adrenaline rush, which was, I suppose, fueled a lot of those uh, adventures overseas. And as a result of having that uh, adrenaline going through my body have, have sort of seeked more and more of it and found yeah. it to be a comfort zone of mine. So in the playground, was it in the playground you decided you wanted to be in the military or where did that come about? It actually was in the right in back at school days. So I went yep. to, I have no grammar that had a cadet unit. And as soon as I got into that, I realised, wow, this is uh, where my strengths lie. It's interesting you mentioned cadets because my son has toyed with the idea of doing cadets. Was the cadet experience what led that actually pushed you into the army? Was it was it reflective? Yeah, straight after school, I went off to university and thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of my life. But yep. at the same time, joined the army reserve and realised that's really what I wanted to do as far as a career is concerned. And became an officer in the army reserve system, and not long later, um, put my hand up to become a member of the Australian Special Forces. For an outsider like me, because it's years since I was in the forces, what's <laughs> the, what's the difference between the Special Forces and and regular? Yeah, in Defence Forces. very, very brief terms, the Special Forces are tasked with strategic level tasks right. that are most likely going to require them to deploy deep behind enemy lines in isolation, carrying out a very important mission and return back without being seen or heard. So that means they're away from the support of others. So you need to be very well equipped to be able to look after yourself. What age were you when you got into that? Uh, so I'd spent uh, five years in the military and then put my hand up to go and do the selection course, which is a gruelling selection it's course. It's a nine-week course? Is it like an interview uh, and stuff? Well, uh, yeah, just just sit down around a <laughs> cup Chat. of coffee, have a little conversation. <laughs> no, look, the initial selection phase is a two- to three-week course. It's specifically designed to break the human body down into its bare basics to find out what its true characteristics are. Mm-hmm. They're obviously looking for people who are able to make good decisions under pressure, yeah. physical and mental resilience, and extreme team players. If you've been deemed suitable in that, then you undergo an 18-month to two-year reinforcement program that provides you with all the skill sets so that you can go on to the battlefield and perform as a Special Forces operator. So did we get at what age you were? Uh, So I was 23 when I did that. 23, and then so a couple of years of more training, and then how long were you uh, sort of in the 
Special Forces. Yeah, so I did four years at our part-time unit, 1st Commando Regiment, which is based for me just next door down at Williamstown, Melbourne. Oh, that's dangerous. Oh, yeah, very. That's a big war zone in Williamstown. Getting there can be difficult. You've got to (laughs) go through Footscray. Um, The traffic over the Westgate Bridge is the worst No offence to Footscray, people. But um, no, this is where I I came to this big dilemma in my life that pushed me out of the military. So in 1999, Australia had its first significant deployment of troops overseas since the Vietnam days. We went to East Timor. East Timor, Yeah. yeah. And the 1st Commando Regiment was not selected to go in that first rotation. And that wasn't satisfying enough for me. I felt like I missed the boat. Right. And why so, was that? Oh, they went, sub- they went subsequently. Yeah, you know, they yep. can't take everyone. So yep. they, no, they, they went to South later. Yarra boys. They got them, did they? <laughs> yep. So I opted to go over to East Timor literally two weeks after the first troops arrived as a humanitarian aid worker working as a security risk manager with a non-government organisation. Oh, so you literally left the army? I just took leave. Just right. leave. Bang. Okay. Yep. Straight over. And got there and thought, wow, this is amazing. Yes, I love this complex environment that I'm in. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad I'm not here as a soldier. And I'm really getting an enormous amount of satisfaction from providing that humanitarian relief to the civilians that are embroiled in that emergency. So the way it played out was what you hoped and expected, or did you want to go there for other expectations? No, a lot of people say, oh, well, you're always wanting to be a humanitarian, and that's what I am now. I'm, yeah. That's the bulk of my life. Mm-hmm. But no, it sort of was fortuitous that it, it led from one thing to another um, and, and it took me that experience to then go, wow, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Opened a massive door for you. Yeah, so you. So East Timor uh, finishes, so then yep. what? Well, three months there, then I had to come back, sort of had to discharge and mm-hmm. forget all this life back here and then I headed straight back overseas, went to Albania, Sudan, Afghanistan with that same organisation and then transitioned across to the United Nations World Food Program, which is a food aid arm of the UN. Mm. Others that you might be more familiar with, uh, World Health Organization, they look mm-hmm. after food. UNHCR looked after refugees. We're just all about emergency food relief. And I imagine that military and special forces training really gave you a, uh, probably not unique, but certainly an insight into the best way that you can help in these crises. In particular, in my role. So I was a security yeah. risk manager. That essentially meant that I was keeping my staff safe. Uh, I would provide guidance on what to do if you get shot at, if you come across landmines. But the bulk of my job responsibility was to go forward and speak to the military and the police who are in charge of the communities that we're trying to provide assistance to right? and get their acceptance before we try and come in and provide that level of, of uh, assistance. Otherwise, we're pushing something on someone who might think that there's some yeah. other alternative reason. And, and you'd be perfectly placed because you could speak Absolutely. their language. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have uh, empathy for what they're trying to achieve as well. Were, were some countries more receptive to your role? In every country... There's one side or the other who yeah. doesn't want us there right. because we're providing food to one side mm. or the, and uh, probably right. not the other. Mm. And it's – although that's not what drives us. We drive it purely on who needs the assistance. Mm-hmm. But for there'll be someone there who doesn't want us there and that, they're the difficult ones. For the other side, the, the ones who do want you there, is it a good working relationship generally between the humanitarian aid people and soldiers on the ground? Yes, 100%. Yeah. That's not the difficult part of the job. The difficult one is convincing somebody who thinks that we're providing assistance to their enemy and you've got to go in there. And how do you resolve that? That's where you have to really become a, an amazing communicator who can build relationships very quickly and reach the right touch points rather than just go in there and put the book down and say, I'm from the United Nations, we have a right to be here mm. you know, and put the book down. That's not never going to work. So it might take many, many meetings, many, many conversations Essentially, for me, I, I realise that at the end of the day, a hungry person is a more desperate person. And if they're more desperate, then it's worse for everyone Right. Uh, as far as the conflict's mm. concerned. So let's try and stamp that out. Continue fighting. I'm not interested in inf- interfering on that. But let's not let children and women be a part of this. Yeah. I, I can't imagine how difficult 
your job must have been sometimes or a lot of the time. So what what was your biggest frustrations that you had in this communication process with these uh, with the people? Without a doubt, the the most frustrating thing is when you know you're doing the right thing and you're talking to somebody who's just not mm. playing by the rules mm. and they're denying you access simply because they they are using that as a tool of war. Yep. And you want to say that to them, but if you do, that's it. You, you would get kicked out. Now, let's take that life experience into the boardroom and classrooms of the corporate world that you're now working in. I guess when you do a, a hands-on experience with your audience, it's not paper straws and bits of paper and sticky tape that you make a bridge. Correct. With no, all I, respect to those no, people yep, listening who do that. And good on them for doing that. But no, no, I'm, I'm taking people on journeys overseas and immersing them literally through either good storytelling and authentic, so real-time images that I've shot through a camera or, or photos and, on and a screen. Or through VR. Now, just before we started this conversation, you demoed for us this awesome experience that, Carson, there's no one else in Australia doing this kind of VR yeah, we had, presentation. we had a quick chat. I don't think there's a speaker in Australia doing VR and um, that I've seen, so congratulations on uh, bringing in some technology into the keynote. So explain, Mark, what we mean. That's the sort of third way of stimulating I, that I'm finding is working very, very well because once you've got those goggles on, you can have a full immersive experience in the safety of a training room, but you're taken literally uh, overseas into these difficult situations. And I'm not trying to teach you or expose you to the danger and the risk. I'm looking at it from what, what, we learn from the what experience? other behavioural aspects that are going on in this particular yeah. scenario that we can then relate back to them. So just to paint a picture, everyone in the room, in your audience, wears their own individual uh, mask correct. through which they can see this 360-degree video. That is correct. Yeah, so, cool. Talking from the experience that we just had, it was three or four minutes. It was immersive. I mean, we're yeah. sitting in here recording the podcast, but it was an immersive experience. And the visuals, you, know, you really felt like you were in that vehicle. Well, that's what we're always trying to achieve, isn't it? And we've got the heartbeat to start getting the yes. motion going. You've got the visual there. You've got the sound. But the best thing is you're isolated from everything else yep. in the room. So no longer are you having the opportunity to maybe glance down at your phone because it's just gone ding, ding, mm. or look outside the windows because a bird's just flown past. You're 100% engaged Absolutely. in that moment. And you've got a, a string of these videos from, from the top of Mount Everest to the depths of war zones. That's correct. There's a couple. I mean, And, yes, we've got quite a few, but we don't just do that. Otherwise no. it turns into a bit of a <laughs> yeah, let's it, just it, go it, on a sightseeing tour. It's a tool that you use as part of your overall experience yeah, that's and the right. messaging you get. Yep. Three to yep. five minutes, that's yep. all it takes for yep. that experience, and then you come out and then the discussion is much more powerful. So your key messages that you do like to, uh, to talk about are? Well, I generally are uh, being employed to talk about leadership, teamwork, communication and working under pressure and then within that there's a series of of sub messages I suppose that I bring out but the key ones would be uh, working under pressure and those leadership decision making points that can doesn't matter whether or not you're on the Gaza Strip or climbing Mount Everest if you get it wrong in my world somebody (laughs) dies if you get it wrong in the corporate world the consequences yeah maybe no one's going to die but you could lose a huge amount of money and if you want to know what's more stressful Ironically, they're they're probably on par mm. because losing money in a you know a business environment is as stressful as uh, anything I I know I've had to deal with. So, so, can you give us a nugget about what you delve into with the with the leadership topic? Uh, yeah, definitely. I've learned through all of these experiences that you can be out there doing a great job, but if you don't have a great network of people around you within your organisation and outside that you can call on in times of need, then you're really leaving yourself. Uh, isolated and you need to be able to rapidly call on them uh, and understand the environment very, very quickly in order to 
lead yourself out of those difficult times. So this is what you would do in a standard keynote presentation, 45 minutes or mm-hmm. 45, 60 minutes, yeah. Absolutely. But if it's a smaller group, a, then... You can go to a, a whole other level in workshops and, and training following on from that. Yeah, absolutely. They've, I can run 10 minutes to 45-minute yeah. keynote or you can go for a, a full day. And yeah. you can take us out of the conference environment too and to your own property. Yeah, so we've got 140 acres just north of Melbourne, an hour out of the CBD, where we run groups through practical simulations. These, again, not the traditional stuff. We are immersing you into the environments that I've been in. So you'll actually turn up and role play what it's like to be a humanitarian aid worker. And you'll have to go and negotiate with a village elder who lives on the top of the hill to try to get access to that community. And there'll be a series of things that go wrong along the way that will immediately bond the team. Uh, demand excellence within them to lead them out of these difficult moments. And, and what I won't, sort of... I won't be telling you what they are now. Oh, of course not. Just gives up the game. <laughs> but have a look at these photos. <laughs> <laughs> what, and what sort of time period does that actually operate? Is that a full-day program? Is that over a two-day? How does that well, work? We do sort of mix them or make them yep. up depending on what, what the you know, budget needs yep. and time yep. and all the rest yep. of it. We would normally say you need a minimum of a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sorry, half a day. Um, but you know, a full day is awesome. And, um, and ideally what size groups? Uh, I don't really like the group sizes to get over 25 yeah. because all of a sudden then we've got a lot of people standing behind each other watching somebody else try to negotiate, for yeah. example. Mm. So, no, if we can get it down to group size of 10 to 15, it's amazing. Uh, it's a lot, lot more powerful experience. And if I could just stress one more, this is not a boot camp. So we're not going up there and you know, putting people under physical pressure. Yeah. There's a physical component to it, but the idea is to put people under the mental pressure that we all face you know, day-to-day lives. Um, I don't. It's not about embarrassing people because mm-hmm. they're not sure. necessarily physically. Yeah, which is actually a good point because a lot of team building stuff is has the physical element, mm. but yours is more about the mental element yep. as opposed to physically exerting themselves. Yeah, over a day. and the lessons yeah. learned from it. If you get five people together, you, you'll get one person who'll step up. If you put a group of fifteen together, then two will step up because just by default you've got mm. some more uh, aspiring people within that group. But that's why I like to keep it really low because you just can't stop those uh, assertive people coming forward. Yeah. So if we, even if I had a group of 15, I'll be breaking them down into groups of five and there'll be three groups of five roaming around thinking that they're probably competing against each other um, and it will really allow then everybody to step up and, and make a contribution to those uh, decisions. Just while we're on about the, the natural order of things, I remember having a conversation recently with my kids and the discussion basically said, can two strong leaders work together? What's your take on that? Well, absolutely, because a leader is somebody who relies on others around them. So if they're good leaders, they'll understand that that other person is an amazing asset to them and they'll both, or if both of them are effective leaders, then they'll work off each other. They won't stand over the top of each other. (laughs) Well, you can now, Michael. Yeah. What do you think is the one key thing a good leader has or is there just not one key thing? Well, it's probably not one, but the couple of things that I've noticed overseas when I've looked up and gone, wow, I'm really impressed by that person that I'm being led by is honesty. Mm-hmm. So in our environments, there's huge amounts of corruption going on all around us and yet we're, and we're somewhat susceptible to that. It would be easy sometimes. So is that a building trust, trust, like, trust and honesty? Yeah, just everything that they do is by the book. Yep. There's not one way that they're going to be swayed from that and that's honesty with themselves, honesty with their team and 100% honest with the environment that they're in. So for us, it would be sometimes easy just to... Uh, you know, even pay a bribe to get through a checkpoint. Mm-hmm. But you, you just can't afford to lower your standards because the next time you go through, you'll have to pay it again. 
So, no, un- honesty is, for me, the, the key sort of attribute of mm-hmm. a good leader. Yep. There's plenty of leaders out there who are effective, but they're not honest, but that's, they're just not... But as you said, honesty, it's, it's, one, it's one word, but it's, a co- it's very complex in terms of what True. sits underneath it. True. Yep. What was that moment in your life when you moved from out in the field doing humanitarian work to, I think I've got some things I could tell an audience? Well, I would always come home and I'd be sitting around a barbecue and telling a few stories and I recognised a lot of people were very, very interested mm. in what I'd been up to <laughs> and some of the stuff I was doing and I thought, wow, this, is, this has got an appeal There's back here because it's so <laughs> different to yeah. The, yeah. the world we live back here and, and I thought, wow, this is, this is where it's going to head, I think. And uh, so it took me a couple of years to sort of consolidate all that while still working overseas. And then, uh, well, the climax came when we had a child overseas and realised, no, I want to bring them up in Australia. Then I thought, no, I'm going to activate that plan. So the first thing was to write a book. Uh, got onto that. And From then, Arafat, to Arafat, Arafat to Everest. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about that because that's an interesting title. Well, yeah, that was probably more challenging than actually climbing Everest. Right. <laughs> uh, writing the book or meeting would, Arafat? No, writing the book. Oh, I right. wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I found that quite challenging. <laughs> but no, I did describe it. It took me a year and a half. And it's essentially a journey through six countries that led me to a point in my life where I was based in Nepal with the World Food Program, providing an interface between the UN and the Maoist insurgents and recognising a lot of people were coming into this mountain to raise awareness of various issues using mm-hmm. the mountains as platforms. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I've got one of the biggest issues in the world, uh, hunger. Mm. Uh, I'm a climber. I'm going to do it. So I set off, climbed a small mountain, bigger mountain, and then tackled Mount Everest in 2006, found myself on the top raising the flag for the World Food Program. What was that like? Oh, it was obviously exhausting, tiring, cold, all the rest of it. But um, the the most rewarding thing was being able to raise that flag on behalf of you mm. know the, the billion people who wonder today whether or not they'll go to bed with a nice warm sensation inside their stomach because there's food there. And and what's the biggest obstacle for solving world hunger? Ah, uh, well, if you if I had to just put it down to one word, it's corruption. Like I go right. back mm. to before this honesty mm. thing. Yeah. This the corruption is embedded in all of these countries that are dis- dysfunctional, which is why. It, We've got others imposing ways on how they should be leading, and that just causes a conflict. So, and, and and let me take you back. Then, what's fueling the corruption? Greed. That's just human greed, mm. and it's also the inability to understand that differences are what creates a strength. They see the differences. No, they're from that ethnic group, and I'm from this ethnic group. Therefore, I can't work with them. Right. Uh, so there's that systemic problem of not trusting each other. And so education is needed to yeah. to yep. bridge that gap. Yeah. So in the time you've been doing the humanitarian side of your work, have you seen a change either way for better or, or worse um, with the food program and how it's been rolled out? So one of the key programs of the World Food Program is what we call school feeding. So that's where we, instead of handing out food, we encourage families to send their children to school rather than sending them out to, to work where we give them the food at the same time they get an education and then we give a little bit more food so that they can take that back to their parents. So the parents are under no threat of sending their, their kids out to go and get the 2 or $3 that they'll get if they work all day in a mm. brick factory or if they move logs around all day and sell them at a restaurant. You know, it's mm. all of these high-intensity labour jobs that force families to continue to put their kids out to work because there's no social welfare system to provide support to them when they're 50 years of age and their body's collapsing, they can't do it, because they've been doing it since they were five years old. Mm-hmm. 
Fantastic. Mark, um, we've got to wrap it up now because I know you've got to go and save the world. Uh, (laughs) But thanks for your time. You are one of those speakers who speak from their experience, but I think you really have such a story to tell because of the extremes of your experiences that you've had. Uh, Firstly, in the military and then in special forces and then being motivated to do what you could to help and moving into humanitarian aid. And then the lessons, just as an audience, hearing the stories that you have are fantastic, but then also the lessons that we can then apply to our workplace is brilliant. I reckon it's a really rich experience to be in uh, in Squiz's uh, company for a keynote or beyond. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. If you'd like to hear some more fascinating stories uh, delivered by Mark Squiz Squirrel, please go to his website, www.globalfrontline.com.au. You've been listening to Carson White from Leading Voice and your MC, Michael Pope, with our next guest is... More guests can be found through iTunes or just visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break. Mm-hmm.